Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. dedicated to Henry Farmer. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Tuesday's Agitators Anonymous, Heavy Metal, Miscellany, whatever you want to call it. The ramble, the short and sweet take on the podcast, which is mainly just going to ramble through a little bit of heavy metal gossip, a little comment on what's going on in the scene. Um, What am I going to talk about today is a little bit about death metal, growing old with death metal, middle-aged death metal. Um, Does this happen to every musical form? I suppose it does. And an interesting question that was put to me on Patreon, um, breaking down payments for musicians and how that's changed as we moved from physical to digital copy. Um, It was quite an interesting question, so I just thought I would move it sideways into the regular podcast and bore the hell out of all of you who are sick of hearing about those kind of things. But anyway, this is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous. It is Tuesday, February the 21st of the year 1873. The show is sponsored by Metal Blade, and you can go to um, Indie Merch Shop, which is um, www.indiemerch, I-N-D-I-E, merch.com slash records, and you use the promo code AA2023. AA for Agitators Anonymous. And 2023, obviously, is the year we are in, not 1873, in case you didn't know. Although, perhaps like me, you feel that much a man out of time. You can relate to my Victorian content. Today, I spent most of my morning arguing uh, in a WhatsApp group of other middle-aged men. Combined age between the four of us, let's say, we were, well, maybe we shall not say, but we spent the whole morning arguing over whether uh, Beneath the Remains was death metal or thrash metal. You know what I'm talking about. You know those kind of arguments, those three or four beers in. Well, those arguments now, of course, take place in the cloud. They take place on WhatsApp. You know, you can hope. You can hope to have them uh, face-to-face in the pub and duke it out. I'm on the side that Beneath the Remains is more thrash metal because it has that sharp attack and tone in the guitar and that Arise is a bit more death metal, even though the songs are probably the other way around. The tone is a bit more muddy on Arise, a bit more bass-heavy. 
um, the guitar tone a little bit more death metal than Beneath the Remains, I would have said. The reason I'm waffling on about this and we're arguing about it, and it's amazing that metal fans can still get so worked up and excited. Um, excited is maybe not the uh, word for it, but can get so worked up about things 30 years, 30-something years after the event. And someone asked me to name, to name my top 13 death metal albums of all time. And I realized, and I'm going to make a video about it actually for my YouTube channel, but and I realized um, that I'm going to have to make two parts to kind of be fair to everything. But I realized that not one single album on my list came out after 1993. Um, it is indeed 30 years ago since 1993, 92, 93. I'm going to do a podcast about that because so many incredible black metal albums came out in 1993. It just changed the game. And by 1993, death metal... By and large, I suppose, was sort of had kind of run its course. Thrash metal was a, was a done deal. Black metal was the new, more exciting, more evil game in town. Um, but it is very strange now to consider that death metal, which I suppose was thrash metal's, you know, angry stepchild or whatever you want to say, it was quite amazing to be there in its not quite its infancy, but definitely its adolescence. It's you know, as it was climbing up that uh, mountain to its sort of peak, which I suppose it's kind of inarguable that the peak of death metal, Death Forever did this one particular episode um, based around 1991. I think it was in 2021, 30 years since the pinnacle, the peak year of death metal. Many of those bands are still going um, and an awful lot of them are, are in and around about 50 or older. And it just made me wonder and made me think that... And a, a form of music that is so attached to aggression, to what I suppose people now would consider to be toxic masculinity. But that is a those are two words that don't really mean anything to me. I think they're just a catch-all statement that doesn't really have much basis in fact. Just like many modern things that are designed to end an argument or put something down without really considering the implications of it. But certainly death metal. Death metal... In 1988 to 1992 was just full of vibrancy and energy. And is it possible to sort of latch onto that to keep to keep some of that going as you head towards middle uh, becoming middle aged? I mean, it's inevitable. Every form of music at some stage, every snot nose sneering punk rock band from 1977, eventually 20, 30, 40 years later. I mean, you know, the undertones are still touring. Um, so are many other punk bands from that era, whether it's GBH. If you go and see GBH, you'll see um, some of those guys from 30, 40 years ago. Venom is still touring. Kronos is 60. Um, and you wonder to yourself, and like I've been talking about in plenty of the other podcasts recently, is um, what music is coming through that has this sort of air of aggression? I suppose it is nothing to do with white dudes with guitars anymore. I would imagine so. It's probably... Uh, rap or hip-hop or grime music, I would imagine, um, has taken over the mantle of the sort of young, um, aggressive kind of form of music. The torch has passed to a completely different, um, I suppose, cultural demographic. And maybe that's just the way of things, the nature of things. But it is quite strange to witness um, the kind of, to be part of that growing old process with a music that is essentially so rooted in youthful exuberance and vibrancy. Then you've got a band like Blood Incantation, who I talked with Paul there recently. They kind of straddle the ground between both, even though they're not quite as old as the older generation of death metal people. 
um, their music somehow appeals to a slightly younger crowd. So it's not saying that, you know, all hope is lost or anything like that. Of course not. I mean, I saw a quote from Michael Amott recently. Um, just happened to be looking through it today, looking for talking points. And he just said, you know, have, the heavy metal doesn't need the mainstream. And I've been saying that often enough in the podcast. It just happens to be that, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to reference where metal once was compared to where it is now. But it doesn't need the mainstream, really. It doesn't need any mainstream validity. It's just interesting to observe how things have changed and that death metal is now, um, it's in its middle-aged stage which is such a strange thing to consider for music that was so aggressive. Um, what were my top 13? Well, you'll have to go over to my YouTube channel to find that out. And um, that video will come out in a couple of days. Um, it's going to have some vinyl porn on it. Of course it is. I mean, what do you expect? Um, that just happens to be my generation, whatever you want to say. How is the new Primordial album coming, I hear you ask? Well, it's coming along very well, actually. A kind of blitzkrieg approach to songwriting is beginning to have effect, doing seven, eight, nine, ten-hour days, which is very strange to have to concentrate on anything. You really realize um, once you are placed in a room full of instruments and you have to concentrate on, um, you know, whether it's, for me, writing lyrics, um, figuring out structures all between all of us going, hey, maybe that bit there goes here. Can you try that four times instead of six? Um, and then considering how you used to do it, um, it's still the same way we used to rehearse as we did 20 or 30 years ago when we were kids, only the, you know, the phones in the middle of the room to record the rehearsals. But the, um, the process is very much the same, but I am clearly aware that my attention span is uh, somewhat shredded um, it's just one of those things. It's like an involuntary reaction every 20, 30 minutes to kind of go, oh, to kind of clock into the digital world and f find out what's going on and reply to somebody else and something else. And then you realize um, our esteemed leader, Mr. Williams, is is asking me a question about does it go four or six or what, what kind of thing are you thinking about for the lyrics? And you realize I was thinking about that. And then my attention span just drifted off to completely some other place. So it's, um, I suppose it's part of that sort of thing I've been talking about lately on the podcast about trying to reclaim space to read and write um, to read a book without, you know, put away your phone, put it in the other room and read a book um, to also I'm trying to take back space and time from podcasts, ironically enough, which is what you're listening to, but to try and listen to more and more music to go back and discover uh, albums that I haven't listened to in 20, 30 years. You heard me recently talking about Beyond Dawn and all that kind of thing. But oddly enough, in this death metal um, haze that I've been, and I have been in for a couple of years, I've been going back and listening to some of the albums that kind of left me uh, uh, left me on the shore back in the day um, and trying to see if I can re-engage with them, whether it was Suffocation or The Second Malevolent Creation or things I missed out back in the day, cryptopsy, um, that kind of thing, and see if I can engage with it. But give it the time and the space. Um, I've just been recently, you know, arguing today also, a lot of arguing about death metal today, old guys shouting at clouds today, but I was arguing with um, the um, Nick from Winterfelleth about the um, whether the new obituary album was any good or not. That young man had a lot to say about it, and he says... Um, he says definitely no. I disagree. I think it's pretty good. Um, but are we settling for less from such bands? Because there's a thing which is 
you know, a band goes through their vital early energetic period. They go into a bit, you know, they go into the wasteland a little bit, whether it's, you know, Entombed or Dismember or Unleashed or lots of other, the old death metal bands. But the fact that they find their way back around to about halfway up the mountainside, um, do we do we kind of log into that and go, oh, wow, they sound like they have some energy, but we kind of relinquish some of our critical analysis of the situation by just being bloody chuffed to have um, um, an energetic sounding obituary back um, back in the game. I don't know. Perhaps even though we're all such um, such metal nerds, such compulsives, such obsessives who are still willing to argue about whether Kirk Hammett is better than Dave Mustaine or the bass tone in Injustice for All or all the other things, the um, like... Like, it makes me wonder, do sometimes we hand in some of our critical thinking when a band comes back around? I threw some, uh, you know, the cat among the pigeons by also suggesting that maybe Haunting the Chapel is death metal, is it? Certainly, the song Haunting the Chapel could be Morbid Angel, couldn't it? Um, there's something about early Slayer, but specifically Haunting the Chapel, that, that is, I think, the most caustic sounding Slayer record it's a it's a fucking serious record haunting the chapel after Shona Mercy with its slightly goofy goat on the cover um, you know and it's sort of Judas Priest on meth approach to the songs which don't get me wrong are absolutely incredible haunting the chapel is like an absolute statement of intent it's like yeah this band isn't going anywhere and not only that they are about the most ferocious thing on the planet of course which they kept up but in a way hell awaits is, a, is kind of a bit more of a melodic sidestep but there's a bit more merciful fate in hell awaits than um you know we get back to rain and blood which is a bit more aggressive a bit more brutal but haunting the chapel is um, a dark, dark fucking record. And I I threw it out on my Instagram. I said, is this death metal? The majority of the answers came back as no, but I don't know. I could I could hear an argument that the song Haunting the Chapel is death metal. What's the first ever death metal riff? I was thinking about that this morning in the gym and I thought, dun, 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 That was my approximation of um, the breakdown riff in Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Um, which is really death metal style riff. You could hear, you can, you could hear Chapel of Ghouls all the way through it, or more early Morbid Angel through it. Um, if you don't know what I mean, it's about three and a half minutes into Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Go and listen to it and tell me that isn't the first death metal riff, or put in the comments. Um, well, there aren't any comments, but you can give me some comments on the Friday about um, perhaps I was wrong. Perhaps there's another riff somewhere that's been lurking around um, in some proto. Um, hard rock album from 1969 or 1970 no doubt somebody is going to say oh there's a death metal riff in blue cheer somewhere there could be there could be but i could see haunting the chapel almost being death metal um also in my top 13 there's a few curveballs i'm debating about morbid tales because i had um, a radio interview with Tom G. Warrior I got back in tape trading back somewhere in the late 80s and he introduces himself to the radio station as um, this is Tom G. Warrior from Swiss death metal band um, Celtic Frost. Now we all know it's Celtic Frost, not Celtic Frost. The word is Celtic, the Celts. Celtic is the football team. So Celtic Frost, if you say Celtic Frost, um, I think fundamentally in English you're wrong. Although the band themselves say Celtic Frost. so But Celtic Frost sounds cooler if you ask me. Anyway, he says Swiss death metalers Celtic Frost. So do we just take 
people at their word. I'm inclined to do that. If you say black metal is the game I play, no one going to show me the right way. Well, then in the sign of evil is black fucking metal. Um, Oh, I've been through this before and I'm going to go through it perhaps a, a full episode in the podcast as well but black metal to me has no sonic definition Mortar Drape doesn't sound like Beherit doesn't sound like um, Sarcophago doesn't sound like Bestial Warlust doesn't sound like Immortal um, doesn't sound like Rotting Christ Master's Hammer whatever it's the um, it's the content I suppose it's the willingness to say this is black metal um, it's the the satanic the esoteric the arcane content whatever you want to say um anybody who just goes and goes well it doesn't sound like blazing northern sky from 1992 which many people did in the 90s are quite obviously wrong because merciful fate is black metal so therefore is morbid tales death metal if it is then it deserves to be in the top 13 uh, of my death metal albums of all time hmm see i've got you hooked in now you're gonna have to go off to my youtube channel to figure that one out um, it's a brain breaker, all right, especially when you're a heavy metal nerd. That's that's the them's the breaks when you're committed to the cause. So what's this question? I've been waffling now. What's this question? Someone asked me about Spotify. Um, it was from my Patreon, which, by the way, is uh, www.patreon.com slash Alan Averill. No tears. You can just go over there and become a patron for not very much at all. It's very cool. There's lots of conversations going on. There's movie recommendations. There's demos. There's all sorts of stuff. Anyway, the question was, it's about royalties. This is the question. I understand that royalties from the streaming era are very low unless you're Rihanna, and I am not Rihanna. Um, but my question is, wasn't it a similar situation with CDs? I remember hearing a lot some 15 to 20 years ago at how little a percentage musicians got from CD sales even if the percentage per stream is smaller than the percentage per CD. The number of streams is probably a lot higher than the number of CDs sold. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, so that was the question, and I sort of um, bumblingly um, tried to answer it and was interrupted by a phone call in the middle of it and lost my train of thought and was kind of all over the place. But there's quite a few things to say. Your, your average stream, let's say your average Spotify stream pays... I think, per per stream. Um, The internet says, puts it at 0.0. Let me just check while I'm talking to you. This is happening in real time. That's the kind of man I am who can multitask um, as such. Now, the internet says it's 0.04. Okay, now I thought it was less. 0.004 in other statements. But either way, what this eventually works out at is about $4 per 1,000 streams, $400 for 100,000 streams, and $4,000 for a million streams. Now, I can tell you straight away, having a couple of primordial songs that are on a couple of million streams, um, that it is not $4,000. It's much less than that. But what I said in the Patreon um, answer, uh, to start, to begin with... um, Every time someone in the modern sort of music industry um, landscape talks about the artist, they very often just talk about one person. And I think that's because modern pop culture is generally just one person. And if you're one person making electronic music on your own, uploading straight onto Spotify, then um, you're not. The, you're not dealing with the same things a band does. A band is a band has so many moving parts, analog parts, people, instruments, petrol to go to rehearsals. Um, there's so many other extra costs of being in a band. But also, if you're in a band, chances are you have a contract with a label. And most labels will split their digital 70-30 or 50-50. So let's just say that's 50-50. And let's say you get to a million streams. Like I said, Promodial has a bunch of songs that are a few million streams each. Well, if it's 50-50 split, then you take your $4,000 and you move it down to $2,000. And that's before tax, and then divide it by five. So each band member probably is looking at somewhere, I would say, around 200 to 300 euro um, if you're in a five-piece band for a million stream song. Um, you're probably going to make about 200 euro, uh, which kind of figures out about right with my own streaming um, income. Uh, it's probably less. Usually every now and again I get 20 euro, 28 euro, 42 euro, 62 euro. And that's from having um, not just primordial albums on Spotify, but uh, maybe 15 different records on Spotify. The idea that you as a musician would ever pay the rent from Spotify is almost impossible. But the biggest thing about Spotify is they separate you from your audience. They gatekeep um, the people who stream, um, who stream you. And that's what Spotify is. It's a it's a tr- it's a kind of pyram- pyramidical pyramidical it's a pyramid system how did i say that yeah anyway where the very f- small people at the top get most of the revenue streams if you stream let's say you stream blind guardian a ton of times um your fee that you pay per month doesn't go to the bands that you stream um it's very much a system that's weighted towards um, the top one, two, three percent of artists—they get the the huge share of the um, of the streaming numbers. Bands who never made any money—they just use it as a promotional tool, and that's fair enough. 
But for everybody in the middle, the biggest problem is that if you take Bandcamp is one of the only equitable platforms. And that's because it allows you to um, talk to as a band to address the people who follow you or who have streamed or who have bought something from you. You can mail out to them. I can mail them right now. Hey, uh, Alan from Primordial has this. Um, boring, dumb podcast. Go and listen to it, and maybe I might get a, a click through spike in my numbers for the podcast. Spotify does no such thing. You can't reach the people who stream you. They gatekeep that, um, so you can't sell the merch. Any any merch that you see up on Spotify is um, sold by a third party, um, or you have to um, upload merch through their third party. Um, there is another company, you know, you ha you'd also can't upload the music for free. It costs about $50 to upload per album to Spotify per year. So consider that most bands never make, never make a million streams. You, it's a calculated guess. Let's say if you, um, let me think a hundred thousand streams is about $400. So most bands will never make 100,000 streams of most songs. So let's say 1,000 streams is $4. So if you've got to pay $50 to upload your album, so to make your money back, you're going to work out, um, you're going to need to have about 15,000 streams. But let's say it's got to be more than that, about 20, 20-something 20 thousand streams of your album to make your money back on a $40 um, uploading fee to this third-party platform. There's CD Baby, there's TuneCore, etc., so the question was, um, streaming, streaming numbers are very low, streaming royalties, they are very low, unless you get into the you know, 40, 50, 60 billion streams. And if you're the singular songwriter, maybe you're just the guy from Ghost, you get all that money. But whereas with a band like Primordial, everything is split by five after tax. So if somebody goes, somebody, you know, during the lockdown, people said to me, oh, can't you print, can't you print shirts to make money? And I would go, okay, look, there's five of us. I don't own primordials um you know image rights i don't own the logo i don't own you know if if you would make more money on etsy um selling bootleg bathory shirts or bootleg hellhammer bootleg misfits shirts the fact remains that if let's say every shirt has a five euro uh, profit margin once you take into account the insane postage costs and all that other rubbish Five euro per shirt profit margin. Divide by five, one euro for everybody in the band. So to make a thousand euro, you have to sell 5,000 shirts. Are, is, that, is, is there any hope of selling 5,000 shirts? Um, apologies, I just did my own maths wrong there, didn't I? Yeah, way too much caffeine. People have been telling me to ease back on the caffeine. Okay, let's say five euro profit per shirt. You sell a thousand shirts, that's 5,000 euro. Um, before tax, which gives each member 1,000 euro. Um, the reality of selling 1,000 shirts online in one um, calendar year, look, this just doesn't happen. So um, maybe for somebody who owns the T-shirt production meth methods of their, um, of their band, maybe Millet owns all the creator uh, merchandise and they can, you can live off um, or you can sell tons of those old classic designs. This could this could be a reasonable revenue stream. But for your average band, it's something, but it's not really anything either. But how did an original record contract work? Okay, um, I think part of this question was prompted by um, the guy on Patreon asking me, because he was reading the Amorphous biography. Now, I didn't know Amorphous had a biography. I don't really know Amorphous too well. I used to know one guitar player guy um, years ago. But it seems they signed some contract way, way, way back in the beginning. And I remember the first contract I signed as well. I was maybe 18 and it arrived from Cacophonous Records. It was 50 pages long. 
um, and trying to read this complicated um, law English um, just broke my brain compared to the very, very first contract we ever received, I think was like from Necromantic Gallery. Um, some of you real underground old heads might remember that name, a d small Dutch label. I can't remember which album they released, but anyway, their contract was a page. Makes more sense. But however, um, the basically how an old contract or an old dealings with an old label used to work, and it's still pretty much the same. Um, record contracts haven't really changed that much in 50, 60, 70 years. But what would happen is this. If we consider that the record contract is the bank and the recording of the album, your advance, the money you get to, within which to make a record is like a loan. So let's say the record label gives you 10,000 euro to make your record. That's like a loan. Now you can make that record for 1,000 euro and it might sound like shit and keep nine or you might make it for five and keep five. Your advance is the money that you know you get upfront. And now I always say um, to any band, get everything upfront because you're gonna be the last in the chain. Um, you know, it's better to get everything upfront, have your money and owe a debt that's just, um, you know, I mean, what's a debt at the end of the day? Unrecouped money. Um, off sales i don't really pay any attention to it anymore now maybe that's not the most method uh, you know the most complex methodology <laughs> and the best way to deal with it but i certainly know for many years of being a musician that um if you don't get something up front you will be last in the line this is the reason why we also didn't play Hammerfest the other week is because your deal with your book with the booking agent is that you are um, given money as a deposit on your fee up front and then the second half of the deposit must be paid a week before you play so that you have your payment for playing and then you take the flights out of it and you arrive and you play you don't you don't travel on your own money um with the um sort of rough estimate of oh well we'll probably pay you soon enough after the show that's not how it works Anyway, so what used to happen is you had your $10,000 to make your, or your 10,000 euro to make your album. This is 20, 25 years ago. Now, a mechanical royalty was, was a payment um, on every physical copy. And it used to run at about 85 cents to one euro per physical copy. And that would be taken off your debt, so to say. So what that would mean in actuality is that for every copy you sold, let's say for argument's sake, it would take one euro off your debt. So for you to make one euro, you had to sell 10,001 copies if you were given 10,000 euro to make that album. Um, that's a very simplistic and um, way of um, figuring it out. And I'm probably butchering it a little bit, but that's kind of what it was. Um, and so therefore, and don't forget for every copy, the way, you know, the CDs used to sell for 15 euro, you know what I mean? 18 euro vinyls were the same and um, labels were making three euro 50, four euro 50, sometimes up to five euro per every physical copy. So while the label would have made 40, 50,000 euro on those 10,001 sales, the band would have made one euro. So you can see how it was weighted. I mean, realistically let's say 30,000 to 1 25,000 to 1 um so but then again if the band took off and you sold 20,000 the theory was you were then due 10,000 royalties so let's go back years to those huge big bands maybe you you know Iron Maiden recorded for $150,000 in the Bahamas to make peace of mind but peace of mind sold 2 million copies well then theoretically Iron Maiden should be owed um 1,000 or 1,850,000 in um, royalties 
So that's how you break even. That was how the old record contracts worked. The break even was based on one to one to one, sometimes less. And obviously it's more complicated. So streaming numbers, if it's 50-50, that streaming money still comes off what you were given to make your album. If you're, if you're still given 10,000 euro now to make your new album in the age of streaming, um, the, the income from streaming will be taken against what you've been given. So um, y y it's going to have to add up to your physical sales, your vinyl sales, your CD sales, if there are any. All these other metrics. And don't forget, most of the big labels have also bought into the streaming system. So they're getting they're getting a greater percentage of that uh, physical stream than you are. So, um, again, the money you're given to make your record is like a loan and you have to pay it back. And the means have just changed over the years. But regardless, at the end of the day, paying your rent um, from any form of a royalty just doesn't work, which is why Bandcamp, um, and al which allows bands to sell their own merch, their own vinyls, their own this, there's the only equitable platform fundamentally because it gives you access to the people who love your band. And if you can get yourself a thousand people who love your band, um, this is the truth, is that selling a thousand albums um, a thousand vinyls directly to the people who love your band and maybe, you know, creating a bundle with a shirt and signing it. If you sell a thousand um, bundles at a hundred euro each, that will pay you more than selling 10,000 copies or 20,000 copies of a record on a major label or really any kind of label um, or 30,000 most likely as well. So what can I say? The only equitable thing really is if you're going to buy merch, you're going to buy things, try and buy the things bands are producing themselves or over the merch table. Anyway, I thought it was an interesting question, my friends. It was been a bit of an all over the place ramble. I've gone on for 10 more minutes longer than I thought I would. Um, the maths involved there, it's not an exact science. So don't come at me telling me you missed out. It's not 0.004. It's not 0.003.873 recurring, blah, 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 blah. I get it. Either way, it ain't much. And it certainly hasn't paid my rent. Well, my friends, Agitators Anonymous, Tuesday's Heavy Metal Miscellany. I am Alan Averill, and I will see you on Friday um, for something a bit darker, a bit more interesting. Could it be political? Could it be geopolitical? Could it just be local? Who knows? Hmm. Chinese spy balloons. How come it's not racist to call them Chinese spy balloons? I don't know. It's a good question, though, isn't it? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 